Good morning, everybody. Good morning. I'm going to dismiss the kids. I know how much you loved enjoying, uh, how much you enjoyed being with us last week, kids, but I'm going to dismiss you. And one of these days, you can join us again for another Donut Sunday. So, well, hey, I want to take the opportunity to welcome each and every single one of you, whether you've been coming here for a couple weeks or you've been coming here for a few decades. You know, our mission at this church is very plain, very, very simple. It's to know Jesus and to make him known. And we do it through four core practices. Number one, we preach the gospel. We preach the truth of Jesus Christ. Number two, we cultivate worship. We worship him and him alone. Number three, we create community. We come together. We love together. We serve one another. And number four, we live on mission and we preach the gospel to everybody that we know in this local community. So that's a little bit about who we are as a church. And and my name is Ben Espinoza, and I serve as the pastor of Community Life here at Covenant Church. And this morning, I'm super excited to be kicking off our new series called Ask, where we deal with some of the tougher questions of the Christian faith. And I want to thank everyone who took advantage of asking us questions. We got a dozen times a dozen questions, and we're probably not going to be able to answer all of them. However, if you have a pressing question, just shoot me an email, ben at bgcovenant.org. I'd love to buy you a cup of coffee or buy you lunch or whatever. We can talk about some of these things. So the reason we're doing this series on the tough questions of Christianity is because people have tough questions for Christianity. And when we're asked these questions, Peter tells us that we need to be ready to give an answer for our faith. And that Greek word for answer is apologia. It literally means a logical defense. And as Christians, we're supposed to be people who can rationally explain Christianity to people who have questions about our faith. And when we as Christians don't answer these questions, it damages our witness. Now, I know a lot of you are thinking, you know, Ben, I'm not really that an intellectual type. I just love Jesus. I love the Bible and all that. That's great. But you tell your atheist friend down the road, he's going to be like, well, you haven't even given me an answer for your faith, but why you believe it. I know some of you may be thinking, well, my faith is super personal. I've had this wonderful experience with Jesus. That's why I believe it to be true. And that's great too. But frankly, your agnostic friend down the street isn't going to care about the experience that you've had. People want reasons to believe that are grounded in facts and in logic. And when we can't answer those tough questions of the Christian faith, it damages our witness. And we're a church, like I said, our mission is to know Jesus and to make him known in this local community. So one of the ways that we make him known is by answering people's tough questions, the challenges that people have to the Christian faith. Now here at Covenant, we talk all the time about living on mission and showing people this great community of Christians that we have here. But sometimes we forget that while one of the greatest apologetics for the Christian faith is the sheer brilliance and the magnetism of Christian community— People still have genuine intellectual reservations about the Christian faith. Maybe some of you are here today. But as Christians, we're supposed to love people regardless of who they are and regardless of what questions they ask. Simply because people have strong reservations about our faith doesn't mean they're our enemies. Remember, there was once a time where you didn't believe in Jesus, where you had your doubts, and you came to faith not only by seeing the genuine beauty of the Christian faith, but also the truth and the evidence that supports rational belief in Christ. So the reason we're doing this series is that so you and all of us here can be equipped to answer the questions that people have about the Christian faith and to be able to converse in a meaningful, charitable manner. 
Now, I've said it before, and I'll say it again, okay? It's my job as a pastor to help you live out your life in a way that honors Christ. And with this series, I want all of us in this church to be thoroughly equipped to give reasonable answers to everyone who asks us about why we put our hope and our faith in Jesus Christ. So the first question we're going to be tackling today is this. Is there evidence that Jesus was real? And if he was real, what evidence is there that he rose from the dead? Now, that's a question that I know many of you are going to answer in the affirmative. Yes, of course he was real. And of course I believe that he rose from the dead. But could you tell a skeptical person why you believe all that stuff to be true? Why do you believe Jesus was real? And what evidence is there that he actually rose from the dead? If we can't answer this question in the affirmative, then our faith is pointless. Apostle Paul says that. All the stuff that we do, the worshiping, the preaching, the prayer, the communion, more importantly, the gospel that we preach, the good news of Jesus Christ, it all rises and falls, not only on the existence of Jesus, but the truth of his resurrection. So we better know what we believe and why we believe it to be true. My goal here this morning isn't to give you the right ammo so you can take out all your skeptical friends with the truth. My goal is to build you up in your face so that you can better converse with people about Jesus in a way that is appealing, logical, and irresistible. Before we do so, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll open up our minds to the truths that you want us to hear this morning. I pray if if, uh, if there's people here who have doubts, that you'll answer their doubts, Lord. If there's people here who have questions upon question upon question, that they'll find their answers here in the church, Heavenly Father. Bless our time here this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Did Jesus of Nazareth exist? Was he a real person? Can we prove from evidence other than the Gospels, other than the Bible, that a man named Jesus of Nazareth actually existed? I need to say from the outset that the existence of Jesus has been universally accepted by skeptics, by scholars, and by Christians, of course, from the inception of Christianity. But something that's become a lot more popular these days is to simply deny that Jesus existed in the first place. And this kind of thinking began circulating around 200 years ago or so when historians and theologians began this quest to uncover the real historical Jesus And these were scholars who wanted to separate Jesus, the Jesus of history, the actual Jesus, from the Jesus of the Bible that Christians believe to be true. And in these quests for the historical Jesus, some scholars began to flat out reject the historical existence of Jesus. And while the Christ myth theory has been rejected by just about 99% of everyone who's ever lived, a lot of people really eat this kind of stuff up because it has the aura of a conspiracy theory. And we all love conspiracy theories. Man never landed on the moon. That's one. Elvis is still alive and kicking it with Tupac. The 2000 election was all a big sham. And my personal favorite, that the earth is actually controlled by a race of lizard aliens. It's not the craziest thing you've ever heard, people. But those who deny that Jesus existed are few and far between. They're on the edges of mainstream scholarship. But it's something that's become super popular, super trendy. I mean, it has its own Wikipedia page, people, so you know it's true. And if it's on the internet, it has to be true as well. And the argument goes something like this, okay? Here's the case against the existence of Jesus. 
Jesus is a fictional character based on stories from Mesopotamian, Egyptian, and Greek mythologies. In each of these mythologies, you see saviors who were born on December 25th, were born of a virgin, lived perfect lives, died for the sins of the world, and rose again from the dead. Plus, apart from Bible, from Scripture, there are no historical records that a person named Jesus actually existed. And you'll see a a lot of people kind of put this on their Facebook page. This is a a chart that you'll see kind of thrown around. I don't know if you can read it. It's a little blurry. But uh, look at this Greek god named Dionysus, okay? He was born of a virgin. He performed miracles. He was called the king of kings, and he rose from the dead. Or look at the Egyptian god Horus. He was born on December 25th as well. He was born of a virgin. He was baptized at 30, and he had 12 disciples, okay? And you look at the Hindu god Krishna, who was born of a virgin, also performed miracles, and rose again from the dead. Now, when you look at all these mythological deities, does it seem like a stretch to say that Jesus was a made-up person, and just like all these other gods and other religions, doesn't that kind of make sense? Doesn't that sound good? It would, if any of this were actually true. Now, I'm going to go and try and say this in the nicest way possible, okay? Very, very little of this is true. In fact, it's mostly lies, okay? This chart is the invention of conspiracy theorists who, who try to bend the truth to disprove Christ's existence. Now, think of the logic behind this, okay? The New Testament was written by devout Jewish men in the Mediterranean, and chances are they would have never heard of Krishna or Buddha or Mithra, and they may have heard of Dionysus, but they wouldn't have drawn, uh, drawn any truth from that. And even if they had, uh, they would have never drawn an, on any of these mythologies to formulate a new god. The, the facts just aren't there. You do your research, the facts aren't there to support any of this, okay? Neither is the logic. But the thing is that people will digest this stuff because it has elements of truth and it sounds really good. It's, it's specious. It gives people an excuse to not believe in Jesus and discredit Christianity and all it's worth. But as Christians, we need to be aware of the different ideas that continue to show up in our culture and circulate around our culture. Because if somebody sees this chart like I just showed you, and they don't have good reasons to believe in Christianity, they're going to take this as gospel. The fact of the matter is that we have more than enough evidence from non-biblical sources to prove that Jesus of Nazareth actually existed. Listen to, the, listen to this quote from Josephus, who was a non-Christian Roman Jewish historian, okay? Big name, all right? He says this, At this time there was a wise man named Jesus. His contact was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who became his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. Okay? About 20 years after Josephus wrote this, another historian, a Roman senator named Tacitus, described how Nero, who was the Roman emperor at the time, punished with every refinement the notoriously depraved Christians, as they were popularly called. He he went on to say that their originator, Christ, had been uh, executed in Tiberius' reign by the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. And there are several other Jewish and Greek historians who believed that a man named Jesus existed, and their accounts align with what Scripture actually says. And keep in mind, too, these aren't believers writing about Jesus, okay? These were historians who were more concerned with telling an objective history 
than on speculating of matters of religious faith. The fact of the matter is that 99% of scholars acknowledge that Jesus was a real human being. And these aren't just Christian scholars. In fact, there are many non-Christian, even anti-Christian scholars out there who acknowledge the historical existence of Jesus of Nazareth. Maurice Casey, who was a renowned uh, New Testament scholar and professed no religious belief whatsoever, said this, that the Christ myth theory is the view of extremists. It is demonstrably false because professional scholars generally regard it as having been settled in serious scholarship long ago. And there's another New Testament scholar named Bart Ehrman who's written books uh, that attack the inerrancy of Scripture and even attack the resurrection of Jesus. Bart Ehrman writes this, There are people out there who don't think the Holocaust happened. There wasn't a lone JFK assassin, and Obama wasn't born in the U.S. Among them are people who don't think Jesus existed. And Ehrman also says that when you read these books or these websites that assert that Jesus is based on mythologies, you've got to check your facts because the facts just aren't there. So the fact of the matter is that Jesus was a historical figure, non-biblical history proves it, and 99% of modern scholars agree. So you can rest assured that whenever anybody attacks Christianity on the grounds that it's just good mythology, a great fiction, a great story— you can be certain that Jesus was indeed a true figure. Do the research. But to be honest, you know, that's sort of a softball kind of question, you know. You can throw it at people and you can hit it out of the park, all right? But where it gets tricky is when you talk about the resurrection of Jesus. Most folks believe that Jesus was a cool dude who had some awesome radical teachings and basically started his own religion. But where you find the most disagreement is when you start talking about his resurrection. And people have been doubting the resurrection ever since the inception of Christianity. Some folks back in those days either flat out denied the resurrection or believed that Jesus rose spiritually instead of physically. And that's what the Apostle Paul tries to attack here in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to what he says. He says, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ had not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been rise, raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. For Paul, the resurrection happened historically. It didn't happen spiritually as some people asserted. And if the resurrection didn't happen at all, then all this faith that we proclaim, all the time, all the resources we invest into preaching the gospel, it's all in vain. So this is the most important part of our faith. And as Christians, we need to know how to defend it and explain it to people who have very pressing questions. 
So people who don't believe in the resurrection point to a few different arguments against the resurrection. There's three main theories. Number one, there's the, the swoon theory, okay? This is a fun one. This, this, uh, this theory says that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. And the Bible uh, can kind of allude to it a little bit. It says in Mark 15, 44, that Pontius Pilate, the one who oversaw the execution of Jesus, was surprised that Jesus died so quickly. And in historical evidence that we see, it took two to four days for people to die from crucifixion. Well, according to the Bible, Jesus' crucifixion lasted only six hours. Therefore, being on the cross and experiencing the excruciating pain that he did knocked him unconscious. Now, back in those days, when a person died, what they would do is they'd wrap them in cloth and perfume the body to take away the stench of the body. And they used oils and spices and perfumes and all that stuff. So Jesus was wrapped up head to toe, and the smell of this perfumery just kind of revived him. That's the swoon theory. So Jesus was resuscitated. He wasn't resurrected. And, it, and this theory uses scripture to kind of uh, attack the evidence for a bodily resurrection. So that's an interesting one. Next one is the hallucination theory. This is another trippy one. This argument says that the disciples and all the other followers of Jesus all hallucinated that Jesus rose from the dead. In other words, each and every one of these people saw Jesus in their minds. They hallucinated that they saw a risen Savior. Why? Because the more you think about people that you've lost, the more likely you are to dream about them and slip away from reality. So the disciples loved Jesus so much that they all began to have hallucinations and visions that he had rose from the dead. And they believed so much that they saw a risen Savior. They told everyone about this experience. And that's how Christianity really got started. A bunch of folks were pretty tripped up, and they saw a man in their dreams. That's the hallucination theory. And the final one is the conspiracy theory. Now, this says that Jesus existed like any other man, and he died like any other man. And when Jesus was put into the tomb, the apostles killed the Roman guards, rolled away the stone using their superhuman strength. They stole his body, they hid it in an unknown location, and they started spreading the rumor that Jesus had risen from the dead. And when some of the more critical thinkers went back to the tomb to verify the claims of the apostles, they couldn't find the body. Not because Jesus rose from the dead, but the apostles are really, really good at hiding things. So those are the three main arguments that try to explain away the resurrection. Either the risen Jesus was a figment in the imaginations of the disciples, or he was resuscitated by some really strong perfume, or the apostles hid the body and created the greatest hoax the world has ever seen. And what I want to do is I want to take each of these uh, arguments and kind of show you why there's different holes in these arguments. So let's pick apart the swoon theory, okay? There is a lot of evidence that the swoon theory kind of ignores, all right? The Roman guards would have made sure that Jesus was actually dead. You see, Roman crucifixion isn't something that you survive. You're hanging on the cross for hours at a time, and it's not the loss of blood that's killing you, not, that kills you. It's not the sheer pain, but it's the fact that you have to hoist yourself up in order to catch breath. And when you finally lose your strength, you can't breathe anymore, and you die of asphyxiation, a loss of air. Now, those Roman guards would break the legs of the people just to make sure that they were dead. And the Bible says that the Roman guards did this to the thieves who were on the crosses besides Jesus, but they didn't do it to Jesus, meaning they knew that he was already dead. 
And it says in Luke, the guards took a spear, they stuck it in his side, and water and blood began to kind of flow out, meaning his lungs had collapsed. Moreover, Jesus' body would have been completely encased in layers upon layers of cloth. And in those days, there were proper procedures and policies that guided this process, just as there are today. Now, if you're half dead, think of the logic here, okay? If you're half dead, you're going through the pain that you just endured, would you have had the strength to rip off all these layers of cloth? And if you did, how would you have rolled this stone away? Okay? And how would you have overpowered the Roman guards in your mummified, half-conscious, perfume-driven escape? Okay? There are more questions that surround this theory than there are answers, right? So as I'm sure you can imagine, this swoon theory is kind of loony. And most people don't even believe it. I mean, Wikipedia doesn't believe it. Like I said... Wikipedia's truth. But you still have books being written about this theory that assert this theory. There was a book written in 2011 by a dude named David Mersch who wrote this book called The Open Tomb, Why and How Jesus Faked His Death and Resurrection. And all of his claims have been proven false. My guess is you're going to continue to see books that kind of uh, assert this theory and assert this claim in the future. That's the swoon theory. It has a lot of different things going against it. Okay. Now let's talk about the hallucination theory. Okay? The biggest problem with this theory is that you have over a dozen people who have the same exact vision, a dead Savior who is now alive. And even the Apostle Paul writes that over 500 people saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. Now if one person had a hallucination about Jesus, that would have been okay. If three people had a hallucination about Jesus, there were probably some substances going around, if you know what I mean. But you have people like Mary Magdalene, you have Thomas, you have Peter, you have the disciples on the road to Emmaus, you have James, and you have the fishermen that Jesus cooked breakfast for. The statistical likelihood of everybody having the same hallucination is impossible. Moreover, hallucinations only last for a few minutes. This hallucination lasted for 40 days. And he came and he went, he ate, and he had conversations with people all the time. Now think about this. If this was a hallucination, don't you think the apostles would have gone to the tomb to see what they were seeing as accurate? And if it was a hallucination, the Jews would have produced the body that was in the tomb. You see, this theory only explains Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. It doesn't explain the empty tomb. It doesn't explain how the stone got rolled away, and it doesn't produce a body. So again, this raises more questions than it does answers, and it's simply unsatisfactory. So let's move on to the conspiracy theory, okay? I want you to imagine that you're part of this new religion based on the idea that a man claiming to be God came to save the world, died for your sins, and rose again from the dead. Now say you knew that the apostles overpowered the Roman guards, rolled a a two-ton stone away from the tomb, hid Jesus' body, and told you to keep it on the down low while publicly proclaiming that Jesus actually rose from the dead when for a fact you know that he didn't. Now, say you were being interrogated by Roman soldiers who threatened to chop your head off unless you were to renounce this Jesus character. Chances are you'd probably give it up and say it was all a hoax. And waves of the fact that you were a part of this conspiracy theory would have circulated through the Roman Empire, and it would have discredited Christianity once and for all. Now, say you didn't give it up. Somebody else probably would have. Now, a lot of folks did renounce their faith in order to save their lives back then. But none of them admitted it was a lie. Think about these 11 disciples, okay? These weren't the cream of the crop intelligentsia, 
all right? These aren't scholars or con artists. These were peasant fishermen who were probably relatively uneducated. And what this theory suggests is that these fishermen, these peasants, with very little money, very little schooling, and no social status, concocted a conspiracy theory so big and so massive that even the powerful people with all the time and the money and the resources at their disposal to disprove this theory couldn't? That's unbelievable to me. But here's the kicker here, okay? In the Gospels, who sees Jesus first? It wasn't one of the wealthy Pharisees. It wasn't one of the Sadducees. It wasn't even one of the apostles. It was the women. And what's so critical about this is that back in those days, women were considered unreliable witnesses. If you murdered somebody and your only hope of avoiding jail time uh, lay in the testimony of a woman, her testimony would have been thrown out of court. No one would believe you. Now, if you're an apostle and you're making up all this gospel stuff, if this was really all made up, wouldn't you put a reliable witness into the story? If the apostles were really that clever, they wouldn't have even mentioned women. The only possible explanation is that this all really happened. Women saw Jesus at the tomb first because Jesus is for everyone and he doesn't abide by the unethical standards of culture. And there's other theories out there as well. Some may say, that what really happened was a combination of the swoon theory and the conspiracy theory, but there are still plenty of holes in that hypothesis, all right? Some may say that a different person became Jesus after Jesus had died, but that doesn't explain the empty tomb. Some may say that miracles could never happen, but that's a whole other debate in itself. And some may continue to assert that it's all just one big great hoax. I don't know how they did it, but I know it isn't true. Or you can just say, that it's easier and more logical to believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead than it is to believe any one of these theories. It's the simplest explanation. So under scrutiny, these theories that try to explain away the resurrection are actually less credible than simply believing in a physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Jesus was very real, and yes, he rose from the dead, and yes, he rules over this universe. So what can we take away from this all? What does this all mean, okay? Number one, that the Christian faith is historically accurate. You can have confidence that the foundation of your faith, that Jesus came, died, and rose again, is historically accurate. The Christian faith has its grounding in history. So this means that the Christian faith, your faith, is a very real, tangible faith. Christianity isn't just some good way of living. It's not just some good moral path. It is a living, breathing faith rooted in the belief that God made himself flesh, dwelt among us, died for our sins, rose again from the dead, and ascended into heaven. And the beautiful thing is that God's provided us with evidence and reason to believe the claims of Jesus, to believe the life of Jesus. This provides us with the encouragement to know that our faith has stood the test of time because of how real and how enduring it truly is. Second thing we can take away from this is that these facts, they also require a leap of faith. You haven't seen Jesus. You didn't see him rise from the dead. You weren't there to put your hand in his hands and in his side. But you believe anyways. We can give people all the proof that we want about the resurrection of Christ, but at some point, everyone must take a leap of faith. Facts are good. Evidence is great, but the evidence will never be enough. 
evidence alone cannot make someone believe. Based on the evidence that you see, you need to take a leap of faith. I can't prove the resurrection to you. I can only tell you why it's reasonable to believe the resurrection. But I can't make someone believe. Everyone at some point, based on the evidence presented to them, must make a leap of faith and say, I believe this. I believe this to be true. Which leads me to my next point. Okay, As Christians, when we're talking with someone who has their reservations about Christianity, we have to be kind and we have to be gentle. We can't beat people over the head with the baseball bat of evidence, logic, and reason and then tell them about the love of Jesus. Okay? It doesn't work that way. And listen to what Peter says here. Okay? But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to the, uh, to the reason for the hope that, is, that you have. You all know this verse because I read it to begin with. It's the verse that drives all modern apologetics, all modern defenses of the Christian faith. But look at the next verse. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. As Christians, we're supposed to be so logical, so reasonable, so compelled by the evidence, but also so loving, so gentle, so caring, and so hospitable that people can't help but be drawn to the truth and the beauty of Christianity. So now that I've shown you some good evidence to believe, not only in the existence of Jesus, but his resurrection, now it's time to take a leap of faith. C.S. Lewis once said this, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. But if true, it is of infinite importance. One thing that it cannot be is moderately important. Do you believe that this Jesus was a liar? That he made up everything that he said? Do you believe that he was a lunatic? He was just some crazy guy. Do you still believe he was a legend? That he was a myth? Or do you believe that he's the Lord? Are you going to fall on your knees and call him your Lord and your Savior? We believe here at this church that he was very real. He is very real. He was very risen, and he's the very ruler of this entire universe. And that he paid the ultimate price for all of our sins. And that is what we celebrate right now. That Jesus Christ, the true Son of God, laid down his life to rescue us from our sins, to restore and redeem this beautiful, this broken world into something beautiful, reconciled unto him. This is what communion is all about. It's the celebration of a very real Savior who laid down his life for our sins, and he's coming back again. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up here. And in a few moments, I want to invite you to come up here and partake of the celebration of the Lord's Supper. If you know Jesus as your Savior, if he is Lord of your life, I invite you to come up here, grab a hunk off of the bread. There's gluten-free bread on the green plates right there for those who need it. Dip it into the cup. Remember all that Jesus has done for you, all that Jesus is doing for you, and all that he will make of you in the future. And if you're not a Christian, I'd encourage you just to refrain from taking this meal. Sit back, enjoy the worship, do what you will. And if you want to talk more about knowing this very real, very risen Jesus, I'd love to talk with you afterwards. I'd love to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with you and show you how much life there is in Jesus Christ. Let's stand and will you pray with me?